I brought along a check. I don't know if you can see this. It was a check from about 27 years ago. Um, I was a single mom, and I had two young children, and I had just moved to Wisconsin uh, from Ohio, and my husband left me for another woman. He had been involved in adulterous affairs our entire marriage, and I just loved him and just asked the Lord to help me to persevere through it. And then finally, he left me and did not come back. And he left me with these two young children. And at that time, he was faithful later, but at that time, he was not supporting us financially because he wanted a divorce and I would not give him one. And so he refused to support us financially. I don't tell you that for any other reason, except I want to get, I want to paint the picture for you. God has blessed us greatly, and I don't live in bitterness over that. I live grateful that the Lord delivered me and uh, brought me into a spacious place. But uh, I had two very little children, and um, we had, it's interesting, my son Tyler called tonight, and I said, Bubby, I'm just sitting here with a check in front of me. He said, Mama, don't even say anymore. I know exactly what you're going to say. He remembers this story so well, and um, we had $14 to last us two weeks, and I needed groceries, and I had very carefully calculated what I could buy to last for two weeks, and the worst part was I needed salt, and women, you'll understand this, men, I don't know about you, but you never need salt, it lasts forever, and, but I needed salt, and it was on my grocery list, and so I went to the grocery store, and we had our calculator, and Tyler was writing everything down and calculating it for me as we put it into the cart, and we spent our whole $14. And I'm not exaggerating, we had $14. And um, so we got home, and we're unloading the groceries, and I said, oh, Tyler, we forgot salt. And I had spent my $14. And so that night we went to bed, and Tyler was feeling anxiety. I realize now I probably relied on him too much and told him too much, and, um, but I can't undo that. And so Tyler had a little bit of anxiety that we only had these $14 and I didn't have salt. And so when I tucked him into bed that night, I said, Bubby, let me just tell you, God is going to provide for us. I said, Mama has no doubt in her mind that Daddy was not our provider, that Father God is our provider, and he's going to take care of us. If we need salt, God will make sure we get salt, Tyler. And he was crying, and I, I kissed him goodnight, and I went out in the hallway and shut the bedroom door, and I said to the Lord, I just told that little boy that you were going to be our provider, and I'm expecting you to provide. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I'm telling you, this story happened just like I'm telling you. And the next day, our, uh, Tyler went to school, and I went back home before I was going to work, and the doorbell rang, and it was our pastor at the time who knew nothing about the $14. And, and he was holding two boxes in his arms, and he said, Rhea, I thought maybe you could use some groceries. And he brought them into the house, and he helped me unload them and I just about was, was speechless when I took out a can of salt from each box. Now, I, I'm just telling you that if you were going to provide groceries for somebody, number one, would you even buy salt? But secondly, would you buy two containers of salt? 
And so I picked Tyler up at school that day, and I said, Tyler, I have to tell you what God did. I told you he would take care of us. I said, there are two containers of salt sitting on the kitchen table, and I told him the story, and we were moved, and, and, and we just were praising the Lord in the car. And then we pulled up in front of our house, and I got the mail out of the mailbox. And I told you I had just moved to Wisconsin from Ohio, and I had been there for probably, I don't know, six, eight months. And but when I was in Ohio, I was involved in a Bible study. At that time, I was, in, I was in the United Methodist Church, and we did what we called the Disciple Bibleship, uh, the Discipleship Bible Study, I think it was called. And it was a couple-year study where we just went through the Word of God from the beginning to the end. It was a fabulous study, and a little elderly lady led this study. And, and she was a, an incredible godly woman, and, and I had not seen her since I left Ohio. And she knew nothing about my husband leaving. The last thing she knew was that we were happily married and everything was peachy keen, hunky-dory. And like I said, I hadn't heard from her or hadn't talked to her since I left Ohio. And I was startled to pull out an envelope uh, from the mailbox with her handwriting on it and her return address. And I thought, oh, Miss Eleanor is sending me a letter. And she was just a delight and very influential in my life. And the letter began by her saying, Ria, I'm sitting here at my table, and the Lord laid you on my heart, and he told me to send you $100. And she said, I don't know why, but I know that you have a need, and I just want it to bless you. And, and that was her letter in so many words. And, and out of the envelope fell a check, this check, for $100. Now, that was 27 years ago, and so that's a lot of money. 20, that's a lot of money now, but that's a lot of money to send somebody 27 years ago. I didn't cash it, not because I didn't need to cash it, but because God had proven to me he would be my provider. He had proven to my son that yet today he will say, he's 33 years old, and I said, Ty, I'm sitting with the check in front of me. He said, Mom, I know what you're going to say. Because God had proven to me that he would take care of me at every turn, that he was my provider. I didn't need to cash this check because I, if I wanted to keep it so that 27 years later, I could give him glory and honor and praise because of it, I knew that there was another check that would come if I needed it. And I'm telling you, that is the kind of God we serve. A God who knows your need and wants to meet it according to his riches and glory. Do you understand that the day before I said to the Lord, I just told that little boy that you were my provider and you had better provide, Lord. Do you understand that I said that the day before, but Miss Eleanor from Ohio had mailed this a week before. Before I even knew I had a need, God provided do you understand that? I, just, I have goosebumps on my legs right now. I could sit down. We could all go home. Because that is my God. And that's the God that we see throughout the pages of Exodus. A God who's saying, you know what? Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't try to figure this out on your own. I have you. I am the God who will provide. I am the God who will meet your needs before you even know you have it. I'm the God that can be trusted to provide, even when, when circumstances look bleak. That is the God that we are learning about in the, in the pages of Exodus. Do you understand that? But what are we learning about the Israelites? We're learning 
that even though he's a God who can be protected, that, or that, that he can be trusted, that he's a God who will provide, that he's a God who's faithful, even though he had proven that to them over and over and over again, they still had trouble remembering. This isn't a frame. I, I said to Dave tonight, I've got to get it framed nicely uh, uh, because I, I have trouble remembering sometimes. That's why I didn't cash the check. I, I, I knew the day would come when I would need to remember and act accordingly. I, I knew that God would never stop being faithful. It wasn't that. That was not the problem. It was me remembering. That was where the problem laid. And so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. The God who can provide, the God who will provide. And we spend so much time grumbling and complaining and, and questioning his faithfulness that sometimes I think we forget that. We forget that he'll never let us down, never, ever let us down, and that he can be trusted to be faithful to us, even when we're faithless. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 16. Before we begin, will you just uh, pray with me, please? Father God, I keep hearing that song echoing in my ears. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. My great deliverer, my mighty God, my faithful Father, the one who is a husband to the husbandless and a father to the fatherless. The one who even when I am faithless will always be faithful because he can't deny himself. I stand in awe of you tonight. It's so much better your way. Father, you know that this message is different and, and I feel like I need to teach it differently than I ever have before. And so, Lord, I'm asking if you could just guide us through this. I'm asking that you would direct every word that's said, every, um, every scripture that's presented, I pray, would have a fresh anointing upon it and that it would penetrate hearts and minds. And Lord God, you know what we need. And I pray that you would pour it out in this place tonight and that you would bring yourself so much honor and glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin reading in Exodus 16, I, I want you to keep in mind that God had not spoken to his people for over 400 years. And now uh, when he brought the Israelites out of slavery, he began revealing himself once again to his people. And this trek through the wilderness was all about him revealing himself to the Israelites, him demonstrating his character, him displaying his faithfulness to them. And when we ended two weeks ago, we, we ended with God revealing himself as the Lord who heals. And, and, and when he revealed himself as the Lord who heals, you'll remember that he did it with a conditional promise. And I want to look just briefly at that promise again. It's in chapter 15, verse 26. He says, if you diligently hear, heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight... Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. 
I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. It was a conditional promise, but it was a promise nonetheless. And, and it was a promise that they would not keep up their end of the bargain. But we will see God's incredible mercy and grace, even in the face of their disobedience. You see, he wanted them to know him as their provider. Uh, they, he wanted them to know him as faithful. They, he wanted them to understand his care for them. They were his people. We are his people. And he intended to take care of them, and he intends to take care of us. And he wanted them and us to believe that and never doubt. The entire time in the desert, the 40-year trek that should have taken 10 days was a test to see if the Hebrews would learn to trust God to meet their needs and provide for them at every turn and deliver them safely into the land he promised to take them to. Do you trust him to meet your needs? Do you trust him to provide for you at every turn? Do you believe that he will absolutely be faithful to you even if you are faithless? Our journey through life is the same kind of experience that the Israelites were going through. And we need to learn to stop grumbling and complaining and learn to rest in every situation we are in, understanding that it's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Some of you don't like that. Are you saying, Rhea, my hard circumstances are God's will for us in Christ Jesus? Argue with scripture. That's what it says. And that is a place of great rest, a, great, a place of great peace if we can come to that place. Dave and I, as many of you know, do a lot of work with men who have... Um, People call it sex addiction. I will call it an intimacy disorder. Or Dave, what do you call it? Sex sexual bondage, Dave calls it. And so put whatever term you want to it, but we work with, with men and their wives who struggle in this area. They struggle with uh, pornograph uh, pornography, um, addictions, and uh, just sexual disorders all the way around. And, uh, and, and we love what we do. Um, but as you, you, as you would guess, the men who struggle with this addiction, their cravings, their lusts have led them into a lot of bad places. And, and and many of them have never, ever experienced true intimacy in their lives, although that is the root of what they're craving. They're craving true intimacy, and they're satisfying their life with fraudulent intimacy. It, 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 it's rather, uh, it's about objectifying women and making them into objects. It's not about developing relationship with them. It's very self-centered and selfish. It's a what can I get out of this kind of connection? Are you with me? It's the difference between infatuation and love. Do you know what the difference between infatuation and love is? I wasn't really sure myself, so I looked up the word infatuation, and I really liked this definition. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise you. Infatuation is a static process characterized by an unrealistic expectation of blissful passion without positive growth and development. It's characterized by a lack of trust, lack of loyalty, lack of commitment, and lack of, of reciprocity. I'm going to say it again. It's an unrealistic expectation of blissful passion without positive growth and development. 
The reason I bring that up tonight is because I believe that the Israelites were infatuated with God as long as he was providing everything for them. But the second that troubles came, their love affair with God died quickly. And it's because they were infatuated with him. It was all about an unrealistic expectation of blissful passion. You see, some of you here tonight are a little disenchanted with God because you had an expectation of him, of blissful passion, and your life hasn't turned out that way. But you see, that is immature love. That is, that is infatuation. It's not true love. Because true love would rest that he always has the best in store for you. That he loves you with an everlasting, unfailing, faithful love. That he will never be disloyal to you. That you are committed to him even when life gets hard. Even when circumstances are difficult. But you see, I think at the root of the Israelites' problem is that they wanted God to do what they wanted him to do, to act in the way that they wanted him to act. Leslie and I were having a conversation about this this week, and I said to her, why do you think you're angry with God right now? And what did you say? She said to me, because I expected these circumstances to turn out better. I expected... I did this, therefore this would turn out. And I said, Leslie, you know better than that. She said, I know better than that, Rhea, but that's the truth. That's what I'm feeling right now. And you see, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were saying, God, I'm in love with you and everything is great as long as I have blissful passion and my life is, is really without pain. But the second pain and trouble comes along, I'm going to question your faithfulness. Leslie was not doing that. She was aware that that's where the enemy wanted her to go. She resisted it. And that's what we're going to see tonight. The Israelites began to murmur and complain when God didn't do things the way they wanted him to do it. And we'll begin in, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, Elim is what it really is, and they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Looks like sin, but it's sign. It has nothing to do with sin. Which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. We're going to read this whole chapter. Stay with me, I promise. We're just going to focus on a certain few verses. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. If you write in your Bible, circle that word test, that I may test them or prove them, whether they walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, at evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. Notice his complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? In other words, it's not us, it's the Lord. 
You might be murmuring against us. You might be bickering against a person. But you know what? Our complaints are all really rooted ultimately that we're complaining against the Lord. My life didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. It's your fault. My circumstances are harder than I thought they should be. It's your fault, Lord. And we complain against the Lord. Verse 8, also Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Notice how many complaints we're we're seeing in these verses. The word complaint is used over and over and over. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I am. I am the great I am. Everything you have need of, I am. If you need bread, I'm going to take care of it. If you need meat, I'm going to take care of it. I am. I'll be that for you. So it was that quails came up in the evening and covered the camp and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the outer layer of dew lifted there, on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent or in his household. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Each man had gathered according to each one's need. Daily bread. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, here we go again, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourself what remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning and Moses commanded that it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat today for today is Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place and let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Let the people rest on the seventh day. 
Now, you need to know that we're not going to talk about this tonight, but this is where the Sabbath was implemented. Uh, some people say, well, the Sabbath is going to be implemented in a couple weeks when we talk about when the law was given on Mount Sinai, but that is not when the Sabbath was given. In fact, what God says is you shall continue to observe the Sabbath. That meant they were already observing it. And this is where it really began. And so even though we're not going to talk about a Sabbath rest tonight, this is what it was. He said, you go out every day and you collect manna, whatever you need for the day, no more, no less, because it's going to spoil. You're getting daily bread here. But on the sixth day, you collect two days worth because on the seventh, you're going you're gonna to rest. That doesn't make sense, God. It doesn't last one, two, three, four, five days. It doesn't last. It spoils. It rots. But you're telling us if we collect it on the sixth day for two days, it's going to last. And it did. Who knows? God means what he says. And so this is where the Sabbath was really implemented. Verse 31, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was white like coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. One of the commentators I read said it was like Krispy Kreme donuts for them. It would have been tasty. That would work for me for 40 years to eat Krispy Kreme donuts. I'm just saying. Then Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded, fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Look how many times we've heard that. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna. For 40 years, until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth. Lots in there. But I really want to focus tonight on the grumbling and the complaining. If you look at verse 1, it says that they journeyed to, uh, from Elam to the, and the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai. And then it gives the exact dates that they were there. And you might say, why do I need to know that? I don't want to get bogged down with those details. But it's really important that they, they, they date this because remember, when we ended last week, we were at Elam and there were lots of palm trees. They were, there was all kinds of springs. It was a wonderful place for them to rest. And, and what they're, the, why they're giving us the dates here is because it tells us that the, the Israelites rested there. They were refreshed there. They stayed there for quite a while. They didn't move, remember, to the cloud move. So for some reason, the cloud parked there in that comfortable place. Can I tell you that the cloud will park in a comfortable place for you? But the time of testing will still come. The time where God is proving your faith through trials and tribulation will still come. He will give you an Elam to rest under palm trees and with wonderful refreshing springs. And he'll let you park there for a little while, but eventually the cloud will move. And when the cloud moves, you have to understand this is God's will for me. He is leading me. So if he leads you into a parched place, it's because he has something he wants to do to you there, for you there, through you there. And we've got to get to that place of maturity where we understand that. I, I really believe that they parked under those palm trees and in the, with the springs of water for a long time because remember, they had drank out of, the, the, out of Mara. Remember that? We talked about how Mara had a laxative effect, that it had magnesium in it, and the, the Israelites complained and grumbled because they were drinking bitter water and they were all angry with God because he forced them to drink this bitter water when they were thirsty. 
And they didn't understand that there was a laxative effect in that water. And when they came out of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they came out uh, probably with parasites and amoebas because the canals in, in Egypt, even to this day, something like 85% of, of peasants have dysentery. And so the Israelites would have brought those parasites and those amoebas out with them into the wilderness. And God, within the first couple days, gave them this bitter water that they grumbled and complained about. But little did they know it was going to act as a purifying agent in their body. And it was going to purge them of those those, uh, parasites and amoebas. I think, this is just Rhea's commentary on it, but I think that he took them to this great comfortable, refreshing place with palm trees and springs because they had diarrhea for all that time. I just do. And I think they were going to get hydrated with those springs, and I think he was going to get those parasites out of there. And when the time came, it was time to move on. That's just my commentary. Can't back that up with John Stott, but I think it's good. <laughs> Lord. Verse 2, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Who did they complain against? Moses and Aaron. But ultimately, who did they complain against? God. But it looked better. It looks better if I can complain against Becca. That, Becca, welcome back, darling. If I can complain against Becca, it, it makes me feel better because I don't like to think I'm complaining against God. So let's point the finger at Becca and not complain against God. But ultimately, when we complain against anybody, when we grumble against anybody or about anybody, we're grumbling against God. So the whole congregation, I want you to see that, the whole congregation, a couple chapters back, the grumbling had just been a few that were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. But here, the grumbling has spread and it infiltrated the ranks. It was no longer just grumbling against Moses. Now it was Moses and Aaron, ultimately God. But it was the whole congregation. And that's really important that you see. If I forget, somebody bring me back to the whole congregation. But I just want to talk to you about the word complain there. Try to stay with me. There's a lot of information tonight, but that word complain, it doesn't just mean to complain. If you look it up in the original language, complain is not even really in the definition. The definition is to lodge, to stop over, to pass the night, to abide, to remain. You see, it's a much deeper meaning than just complaining. It means that the, com- the grumbling and the complaining had lodged in them. Uh, the complaining attitude had taken up residency in them. I-, I was giggling when I was working on this sermon, and Dave heard me laugh, and he asked me what I was laughing about, because I wrote in my notes, com- complaining moved in, and it was having a sleepover. Because the word means lodged, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, I can be like that sometime. Something can happen to me and I can get so caught up in it that it moves in and has a sleepover and it lodges in me and I can't move beyond it. Every time you see me, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to, I'm going to whine about it to everybody I know. I'm going to grumble and I'm going to complain in prayer to God about it because it's lodged in me. Some of you need to get an eviction party going on. Sometimes complaining just moves in and takes over our life, doesn't it? 
I heard a joke this week about a monk, and, and this man wanted to become a monk, and so he went to a monastery, and he talked to the, the abbot, the head monk, about wanting to do it, and the abbot said, well, you've got to understand, you need to take a vow of silence if you want to be a monk, and he said, you know, you cannot say anything but two words for, for three years. And at the end of the three years, we'll bring you in and you can say your two words. And so the man agreed and he decided he would become a monk. And after the first three years, um, the abbot called him into his office and he said, you know, you did really, really well with that vow of silence. What are your two words you want to speak? And, and he said, food bad. And the abbot said, okay, I got it. We'll make sure that we get some better food sent to your room. And now you go back and you begin your vow of silence again. And so the next three years passed and, and, and the abbot called the monk in and, and the monk, uh, uh, the abbot said, you know, wow, you really are impressive. You've gone now these six years with a vow of silence and, and now three years have passed. What are, your, what are the two words you want to speak? And he said, bed hard. And the, and the abbot said, okay, we got you. We'll get some, some new feathers put in your mattress. We'll get it taken care of. Now, you go back and you continue your vow of silence. And the next three years passed, and the abbot, you know, called this, this monk into his office, and, and, and uh, he said to him, you know, what, what are your two words for this year? And he said, I quit. And the abbot said, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain since you got here. <laughs> Sometimes that's us. We open our mouth and all we do is complain. It's interesting to me that, that the definition of that word complain or grumble, some of your translations will say, it's, it actually, the, the Greek word there is where we get our word gong. Remember the gong show where they would hit it and it would vibrate and you're familiar with a gong, right? Uh, and, and that's where we get our word, our English word gong from this word, the definition for grumble or complain. See, if you're a student of the word, this is wowing you right now. Because you understand that when you grumble and you complain, it's an attitude that's inside and it, and it vibrates throughout your whole life. It begins to, to, to resound through your whole life, doesn't it? It doesn't just go off once. It echoes over and over and over and you can't seem to shake it. Uh, grumbling is an audible expression, the definition says, of unwarranted dissatisfaction. It's an expression of one's discontent. It's making a former accusation or expressing dissatisfaction. Grumbling is expressing resentment, displeasure, or annoyance. It can reflect a secret debate or a secret displeasure not open, openly avowed. That's interesting to me. Because when I think about grumbling and complaining, I think about what I do. I just, if somebody does me wrong or if I don't like a situation, I will grumble about it to Don, to Leslie, to Dave. I will just go on and on and on and complain about it. And, and I'm verbal. And so today, uh, Leslie and I were at lunch and she said to me, Rhea, you are verbal with your complaining and your grumbling. She said, I grumble, but mine's all inside. She said, I have this internal grumbling going on, this internal complaining going on. And it was interesting because when I looked up the definition, it said it can reflect a secret debate or a secret displeasure not openly avowed. 
In other words, something you are just displeased with, a discontent or better yet, a resentment. Somebody did something to you and you resent it. And now, even though you never express it with your mouth, I said to her today, I said, Leslie, you might keep it down in there, but it comes out in other ways. It's interesting to me that the word for complaining or grumbling there is used seven times in this short chapter. Seven times. I sent Leslie a text the other day, and I wanted to stress something to her. And you know when you're texting somebody, you can't stress something. And so I capitalized some words. And I, I meant it to, like, say, don't miss this. Make sure you do this. And, and she said, do you know that when you send things that are capitalized, it means you're yelling at me? <laughs> and I'm like, I was not yelling at you. I was stressing that. I didn't want you to miss it. Can I tell you what? Caps lock wasn't an option for Moses when he wrote Exodus. <laughs> but if it were, complaining would be cap locked. It would. It would be, and it wouldn't be because he's screaming it, it's because he's stressing it. He doesn't want us to miss that they were complaining. He's stressing it. He, he wants us to park there. He wants us to see that. And so we are going to park there tonight. And I want you to not miss that verse 8 says that when we complain, we complain against the Lord. Not against our circumstances, not against a person. We complain against the Lord. Turn over to Philippians 2, verse 14. So I thought we'd do something a little different tonight. Instead of me doing all the reading, I thought we could get some volunteers. So Philippians 2, 14, somebody who can read well and loud. Uh, can you turn to Philippians 2, 14? Yes, Carla. So 2, 14, use this mic and read it to us. Right. Do everything without Do what? Do everything. Do everything. Not some mm -hmm. things, not a little, but do everything. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Without murmuring or questioning, complaining. Do everything without murmuring. Thank you, Carla. Without murmuring, without questioning, and without complaining. That means everything. Where are my Friday morning women? When we study the word all or everything, what does it mean? Everything. It, it's all inclusive. It means everything. It means your situation is not the exception to the complaining. It means you are not the one person who has a right to complain. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Your circumstances are not the option that makes that possible. You say, well, Rhea, if complaining is so bad, then why did David, a man after God's own heart, do it? Turn your Bibles to... Uh, to Psalm 142, verse 2. Verse so, 2 is, I pour out my complaint before him. This is David speaking. Before and him, saying, I tell my trouble. So this is David speaking, and he's saying, I pour out my complaints before him, before God. So if complaining is bad, and I'm supposed to do everything without grumbling or complaining, why would David, a man after God's own heart, complain? Why would that be okay? Anybody have any ideas before we read any further? What's the difference between David's complaining and the Israelites' complaint? Laura. Laura's saying maybe because he was doing it to God, not to other people around him, and it was in the form of a prayer. And she's exactly right. His complaint was backed up by faith. He wasn't whining and complaining about the situation God had him in. He was just expressing his pain to God. And in the end, you will, you'll see it as we finish reading that chapter, that in the end, he's saying, I want you to be glorified in this. I want you to be honored in this, Lord. And so please just do your thing. I just want to tell you it's a little uncomfortable. 
And so let's, if you could, can you read through uh, Psalm 142? Can you read that whole, that whole chapter to me? You want to start with verse 1? Verse 1, start verse all over one. again. I cry out loud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I okay, tell my stop trouble. stop right there. So he's, he's crying out to God for mercy, not just to complain. He's pouring out his complaint to God, but he's looking for mercy. Okay, go ahead. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who knows my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look at my, I'm sorry, look at my right and see no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Sounds like a whine to me, but keep listening. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He's directing it back. I'm crying to you, Lord, but I recognize you are my refuge. You're my portion in the land of the living, okay? Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from the prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of the goodness to me. Because of your goodness to me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So do you see what he's doing there? Laura is exactly right. That's so good, Laura, that you picked that up immediately. Because what he was saying is, Lord, here's my anguish. Here's the trouble that I'm in right now. It hurts, Lord. I'm not running to Leslie to say it. I'm not running to Don to say it. I am pouring out before you, Lord. And I'm not complaining because I recognize you are my answer. You see, the Israelites complain but they thought it was God's fault. They were blaming God for not being enough for them. Do you see the difference in that, in that grumbling and complaining? So theirs was faithless. You know, if you, if you were good, you'd be treating us better, God. There was none of that in David's complaining. David was not accusing God of wrong. He was merely voicing what it was like to be in trouble. He was being honest with God about his pain. Uh, and, and so there's a complete difference about, uh, between complaining about God and complaining to God. Israel's besetting sin was grumbling and complaining. We saw it long before Moses brought them out of the wilderness. We saw it while they were still slaves in Egypt. This was their third record in just a few short weeks of complaining and grumbling. The first was at the Red Sea when they saw the Egyptians on their tail. We saw it before while they were slaves. They were talking about the cruel taskmasters. They were complaining about that. But, but we saw it at the Red Sea. We saw it at the last, last week when we talked about Mara and now this. And so we'll see it, continue to see it throughout their 40-year trek through the, the desert. They fought and complained against God. So they were really discontented whiners. They were discontent with what God was doing. They wanted their circumstances to change. But can I tell you that even if their circumstances would change, they would still find a reason to grumble because circumstances don't cause our grumbling. They just reveal what's inside of us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Greg said he wanted to say God requires, we don't have this mic on, total honesty um, and he was quoting the First Thessalonians scripture that said, pray continuously, rejoice always, pray continuously, giving thanks in all circumstances. Why? Why do we give thanks in all circumstances? Somebody tell me. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I want to read it to you again. Rejoice always. How often? Always. Pray continuously. How often? Continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? 
for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, joy is not a product of our circumstances, nor is it conditioned upon it. Joy is a result of resting in the goodness of the Lord and trusting that whatever we're going through, it is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, that he is working in every situation we encounter. And we have to make the decision, friends, to force ourselves to give thanks in all circumstances, recognizing that whatever happens, he's working in it. It's his will for us. The cloud is leading, and we need to rest that he knows more than we do. There is no safer place than smack dab in the middle of God's will for your life. So they say, we're out here, we're going to die of hunger. It would have been better for us to die in in Egypt than it is to die in the wilderness. Do you hear the drama in in their complaint? They aren't going to die of hunger. In, In fact, in the next chapter, we see that their livestock need water, and they're complaining about that. So what does that tell you? They have livestock, They they had livestock that they could milk and get milk. They could make cheese out of it. They could kill one of them and eat. They had options. But you see, when you are a grumbler, when you're a complainer, when you are discontent and you are filled with resentment, you find something to grumble about in whatever situation you're in. You invent things. You're dramatic about it. It Everything is magnified in your life. Somebody turn over to Psalm 78, 18. Okay, 7818 in the voice. They tested God in their stubborn hearts by demanding whatever food they happened to be craving. Mm. Now can you give it to me in the voice? Mm. In their hearts, they tested God just to get what they wanted, asking for the food their hearts craved. What did they, how did they test God? Uh, Asking for whatever they wanted. Getting the food that their hearts craved. Whatever I want, I want, and if you do it my way, I'm happy with you, Lord, but if you don't do it my way, I'm mad at you. Anybody, can you relate to that? You say, well, Rhea, grumbling isn't that bad. There are plenty of other worse sins. Well, I'm going to disagree with you because I want you to see what God says about complaining, that he takes it very, very seriously. We're going to look at God's word, not just my word. We're not just going to say grumbling's not good, complaining's not good. I want to pull it directly from the word of God. So can five of you just come up here very quickly? We're just going to go down through the line. I have them printed out for you. You don't need to take your Bibles. So tell us what we're reading. Numbers 11, 1. You're on. Just put it up. Okay. Um, Numbers 11, 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and he got angry. You say, well, we're not in the Old Testament, Rhea. He doesn't get angry anymore. I'm going to disagree with you. But, but I'm telling you, it displeases the Lord when we complain. That has not changed. Thank you. That has not changed. Cheryl, what do you have? Um, Psalm 106:24-25. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. See, look at this. This is so powerful. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. And so, how, what did that result in? They complained in their tent because he, they did not believe his word. When God says something, he means it. They didn't heed the voice of the Lord, and instead they chose to complain. Thank you, Cheryl. And then just the Jude. 
Uh, Jude 16, the Passion Translation. Now, this is New Testament. These people are always complaining and never satisfied, finding fault with everyone. They follow their own evil desires, and their mouths speak scandalous things. They enjoy using seductive flattery to manipulate others. These people are always complaining. They're never satisfied. They're always finding fault with everyone. They're finding fault with God. They're never satisfied. Complaining and grumbling is, is the overflow of us never being satisfied. Finding fault not just with everyone else, but with God's word. We're not heeding, as Cheryl read, God's word. We don't, we don't hear what he says. Okay, darling, what do you have? James 5, 9, the Passion Translation. Since each of you are part of God's family, never complain. Never complain. <laughs> Good girl. Or grumble about each other so that judgment will not come on you. So the true judge, for the true judge is near and very ready to appear. Look at that. That's powerful. Since each of you are part of God's family, never complain or grumble about each other. How many people have I heard just this week say something negative about somebody else, about another Christian, sit in judgment of them? And they say, don't you dare do that because I'm trying to caution you against this, he's saying, so judgment doesn't come upon you because the true judge is about to approach. That's New Testament, sorry. Okay, Karen, let's read. What do you have underneath? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 11. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. This is the scripture we've been talking about every week. So listen closely. That all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain. Nor what? Complain. As some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were what for complaining? Destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So don't complain as some of them also complained because they were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he says, I'm writing this so that I can warn you. This is an example for you to learn from. They were destroyed by the destroyer because they complained. This one, and let me just set the stage for this one. This is uh, taking place with the sons of Korah. I believe, yes, the sons of Korah, where, where this group rose up and they began to protest Moses and Aaron, and they didn't like what was happening, and so th- this, this rebellion rose up, and the Bible says that the ground opened up, God was ticked, and the ground opened up and swallowed all of those people, and this is coming after that. Numbers 16, 42 through 45. After they had all gathered to protest to Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tent and saw that the cloud was covering it and that the dazzling light of the Lord's presence had appeared. 
Moses and Aaron went and stood in front of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, move back from these people, and I will destroy them on the spot. The two of them bowed down with their faces to the ground. So the word protest, they, they had, after that, they had all gathered to protest Moses and Aaron. The word protest means to grumble against or complain against Moses and Aaron. So there's our word again. It's the same word that's used here in, in Exodus. Thank you so much, darling. So do, do you see how grumbling and complaining, we, we can brush it off and say it, it, isn't, it really isn't important, it isn't really sin, but I'm just going to tell you, God doesn't like it. It displeases him because we're ultimately, this is why. It's not this dictator, naughty you, you shouldn't be complaining. It is understanding that ultimately we are complaining against God. We're saying, you don't love me. You don't care about me. You don't have good for me. You don't have my best interest at heart. I can't trust you. You can't be trusted. You're not faithful. You're not going to bring me. You're not enough in this situation. So do you see why that displeases him? It's interesting to me that we see that the whole congregation, I ask you to bring me back to this if I forgot it, that the whole congregation was affected by grumbling and complaining. It started with a few people, and then it turned into the whole congregation. I need to be finishing, but this is really important. It, it, the whole congregation, they, you see, the Israelites were influenced. They were constantly being impeded by a group known as the mixed multitude or the rabble. Have you ever heard that term before? The, the mixed multitude, well, they, were the, they were the actual instigators behind this grumbling and complaining. If you look back, I think it's in, in Exodus 12, where they talk about the mixed multitude rising up and complaining. I think you can find it in Numbers 11 too, where they reference the mixed multitude grumbling and complaining. The mixed multitude, what were, they were Egyptians that had come out uh, with the Israelites. They were non-Israelites. I wouldn't say all Egyptians, but probably most of them. But they were non-Israelites who had come out of Egypt with the, uh, with the Israelites. You see, they wised up, and they, they got the picture of the plague and the mighty God that the Israelites served, and, 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 and they were, um, they, they, Skip Hertzing, for example, he, he says that they wanted the relief but not the relationship. That they were people who came out with the Israelites because they saw the protection that they got with following God. They wanted the relief, but not the relationship. They, they weren't sold out. They wanted the relief. They wanted protection for their firstborn. They wanted protection from the plagues. They, 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 they wanted protection from the Red Sea. <laughs> they were a group of people who were not completely sold out, not completely committed. They weren't covenant people. And they, because they, they had good life in Egypt, they would say to the Israelites, oh, I long for the days when we were back in Egypt and it was so good and now we're in this heat and it's miserable and we don't have any food. And they started to complain. And how many of you have ever been around somebody who complains all the time? What happens? And the more we're around somebody like that, the more we have a tendency to start doing the same thing. And, and, and that's what happened to the Israelites. They had this mixed multitude with them. They were a bunch of religious freeloaders. And, and really, they, they had a bad influence on the Israelites. And so when I first put that in my notes, I wrote in my notes, you have to be careful who you're surrounding yourself with. We are called to love everybody. We're called to be light in a dark place. We're called to be an influence for the Lord. But I'm just going to tell you what, I will love you, I will minister to you, I will pray for you, but I am very careful who I let in my inner circle. I am very, very, very careful who I let in my inner circle. And it's because I understand this theory. 
I understand that iron sharpens iron. I understand that, that you want people to call you up higher, not people who drag you down lower. And so I'm careful. And so I put in my notes, you need to, under, you need to, you need to watch who you're surrounding yourself with because there'll be people who draw you down. The Israelites were influenced by this mixed multitude, and they all started grumbling and complaining. Are you with me? But as I thought about it, I thought about myself and how I have a mixed multitude in me. There's a part of my soul that really likes to grumble and complain. There's a part of my soul that, that looks back at slavery because I was in it, and I can get drawn back into that occasionally. I can think, oh, it wasn't that bad. It's actually kind of fun. There's a mixed multitude in me that has messed up thinking and it tries to pull me from God's best and entice in me that keeps me wandering in the wilderness of life instead of experiencing the beauty and the fullness of walking in the spirit. There's a whiny flesh in me that keeps me from living the spirit-filled life that wants to be heard and makes its whine loud. Anybody else have a mixed multitude in you sometimes that influences you? And we need to tell that flesh to shut up. We need, to, we need to silence that flesh because it will lead us astray. What really strikes me is that this trip for the Israelites could have only been like 10 days. <laughs> it could have been a shortcut, but it took 40 years. And I believe so much of that was because of the influence of the mixed multitude. And God will always say to me, Rhea, this could have been so much easier. If you just listen to my spirit, if you just, if you let me lead you instead of that whiny flesh lead you, this could have been a much easier trip, Rhea. Call him Lord, but we don't do what he says. See, the word Lord means the one to whom a person or a thing belongs and about which he has the power of deciding. We call him Lord, but then when he decides how our life should turn out and we don't like it, we grumble and complain. And they grumble because they were looking back. If we see in verse 3 that they were looking back at Egypt, the mixed multitude was causing them to look back. And when you start looking back, I don't know about you, but when I start looking back to slavery, because it's been a long time since I've been there, the further away I get from it, the more I forget the pain that was involved in it, the more enticing it can sometimes be. And I'm just telling you that sometimes our vision gets hazy when we start looking back. We forget the pain of our past. We forget the pain of slavery. We forget Forget where that road can lead us. And that's what was happening to, to, the Egypt, to the Israelites. You see, they started to embellish and say, well, when we were in slavery, we got pots of meat and, and we got all kinds of bread and we ate to the full. Are you kidding me? Do you remember you were a slave? Do you remember you had cruel taskmasters? Do you, I doubt very much that Pharaoh ever gave you pots of meat. I'm positive about that. And if he did, it was only so he could get more work out of it. Do you remember how bad that was. But you see, when our circumstances are hard and, and, and challenging, we tend to look back and say, wasn't that bad? I could go back there. And, 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 and it's selective remembrance because, you see, the last time I looked, they were slaves. <laughs> but that's what Satan tries to do. It He tries to make slavery look appealing to us. All your friends are having fun. Remember when you were in the bars, how much fun that is, and now you're at home every Friday night, and it's boring. You had so many friends back then, and now nobody wants to be with you because you're just bizarre. And, and Remember what that was like? And the further we get from slavery, the better he makes it look. You see, grumbling and complaining minimizes your appreciation of your blessing in the present. 
verse 4, he gives us his provision for grumbling. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. I'm gonna, he said, I'm gonna, here's my provision for your grumbling and complaining. I am going to rain bread from heaven. I would say, you grumble and you complain because you don't think I'm good enough. I'm going to just slap you silly, let you die out here in the, in the wilderness. I'm just, that's how I would be. But what does God do? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is what we see in this story. He said, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. Bread from heaven. That's our solution too. You say, well, Rhea, what do you mean? We don't get manna. No, but we have bread from heaven. Karen, can you read your verse? He's, he's reflecting back to manna in this verse. And I want you to listen carefully to this. John 6, 26 to 39 in the NIV. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the things I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must, me, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what's... To believe, the word believe there is to trust in, rely on, lean on. To put your trust in the one he sent. Okay, I'm, go ahead. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. He says, I am the true bread from heaven. They, they say, well, you, your father gave our father's manna from heaven, and he's saying, I am the true bread. It's me. And, and he says, I give life to the word. Those who eat of me, who indulge in me, who partake of me will never hunger. That word hunger means to be needy, to suffer want. It means to crave ardently, to seek with eager, eager desire. In other words, he says, here is, here is the remedy for your grumbling and your complaining. To eat of me, to, to, to daily. Notice it was daily. They had to go collect this manna daily. They couldn't take more than a day's supply. They had to only take enough for that day because it would, it would spoil. And the next day, they had to go back out and collect again. Notice it wasn't about working. They didn't have to labor for this. They just stepped out of their tent, scooped it up, and ate. And they, they had sustenance. They had fill. Are you with me? 
You and I need to daily partake of his word. He is the bread of life. You will have life if every day you get out of your tent and you go to your kitchen table and you open up that word and you partake of the bread of life. I promise you will have sustenance for the entire day. But here's what we do. I ate of that on Sunday at church. It's going to get rotten. It's going to get corrupt. You have to get up in the morning and go collect it again from the word of God. And you eat just that daily. He'll give you what you need for that day. Do you see the parallel? And that's where we get our life. That was the solution. And it was with them for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. Some of you are in a wilderness right now. And you are parched, can I tell you. There is a place of sustenance. There is a place of provision. He will be there for you every single morning. You see, he was proving to the Israelites, I want you to learn to trust me. I'm not going to give you more than you need for the today. Because tomorrow I want to prove to you I'll be faithful. Tomorrow when you get up, I'm going to prove to you, you stubborn little Israelites, that I'm still faithful. I'm still here. You don't have to worry. It's going to be there for you. And guess what? It's going to go away. And then tomorrow morning, it's going to be there again. Presto, I am faithful. Even when you are faithless, for 40 years, they could count on him to provide the sustenance that they need. Can I tell you, for 55 years, he has been the sustenance that I've needed. He's been the thing that I have craved. I thought I was craving the things of this world. I thought I wanted slavery and the the junk I ate while I was in slavery. But I'm telling you, what I have found out is I wasn't hungry for that back there. This satisfies me like no other. He will bring you life. God said, I'm going to do this so that I can test them. I like the voice that says, I'll cause bread to rain down from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a helping of it each day. I will test them to see if they are willing to live by my instructions, to see if they're willing to collect it daily, every morning. I I, I just need to tell you two things, and then I promise I'll let you go. They were to collect it for their household. That really strikes me. I, I didn't even put it in my notes this week, but tonight... I was about to go out the door and my phone rang and it was Tyler and I, I looked at Dave and I knew I shouldn't pick it up because I needed to finish studying, and, but I, it was Tyler. And so I picked up the phone and he was excited to talk to me and, and he was telling he, just so, so many just incredible stories. And, and as he was telling me some stories, I was thinking to myself, he said he, he went to see this man. Tyler, I told you, is a police officer. In the last six months, he found a little boy floating in the water, face down. He was, what, Davy, three or four years old, had been dead in this pool. Tyler um, pulled him out of the water, gave him CPR, prayed the entire time. Lord, he said, Mama, he called me after that. He took him to the hospital. He, he was put on life support. They didn't expect him to live. And he called me, and he was crying. And he said, Mama, I don't understand. He said, I pray every morning on my way to work. He said, I pray that God will use me. And he said, I prayed over that little boy while I'm doing CPR, Mama, and he didn't come back to life. And can you just tell me where God is, Mama? Because I prayed for him, and I asked God to use me, and he didn't. And a couple weeks later, we get a picture of Tyler with this little boy with a fireman's hat on. He's back to life. No, no brain damage, no nothing. Everything's fine. A couple weeks ago, he called me, and he was crying again, and he had been to a daycare center where there was a baby boy, Davey, what, three months old? 
pacifier stuck in the back of his throat, wedged in his throat. He's dead. You get there, Tyler starts CPR. They can't do anything because the pacifier is wedged in his throat, and they try everything they can, and Tyler said he's purple, his body's lifeless. He's not coming back to life, and he said the squad arrived, and he scooped him up, and he jumped in the back of the squad with him. His mama wasn't even there, and he said they, they did a trach trying to get this, this, you know, airway clear, and he said, Mom, he said he's lifeless, and I'm holding him, and he's bleeding, and I'm, he said, I caught myself praying out loud in the back of this ambulance, and he said, and the, the, the paramedics are looking at me like I lost my mind. He said, but Mom, I just was doing what, what it came, just came out of my mouth, and I couldn't help it, and I said, Bubby, you are right where you need to be, and he said, I carry the baby into into children's hospital and he said the mom we had to hold her back she was screaming and and he said and I laid him on the table and and he said mama you got to get everybody to know to start praying for this baby and yesterday he sent me a picture the baby is home and everything is fine and he has this grin on his face and and he texts me he said mom I could hardly hold back my tears every time I look at this baby I can't believe God let me see that he was calling me tonight because he went to see a man. He was returning a pressure washer, and this man said to him, how long have you wanted to be a police officer? Tyler said, all my life. And he said, he said I just, my mama wanted me to go to college, and he said, so I went and got a degree in Bible and in communications. And he said, but I still wanted to be a police officer. So I did this, and he said, Mom, this man laid a hand on me, and he said, I'm going to pray for you to get visions. And he said, because I believe, Tyler, that God had to give you a degree in Bible because he was bringing his man into a police force that, that wouldn't take a pastor, but, but he would take a police officer who had a heart for, for, for the Lord, and that every situation that was needed, where he needed prayer, he needed somebody to represent him, he was going to put you in that call. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I call my mom all the time, and she prays for me. He said, he brought a family into this police. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm telling you the story, not to brag on my son, although he is the sweetest guy you've ever laid eyes on. I'm just telling you this because I read today that he said, I want you to take some of this manna and I want you to put it in a jar and I want you to keep it. It spoiled after a day, but it didn't spoil in the jar. But I want you to keep it and I want you to tell your generations after you what I did. I want you to show it to them. And you see, I was eating manna every morning at my kitchen table and my kids were sleeping and I thought they didn't see the manna. I thought they weren't seeing anything I was doing but you see I was collecting for my household. I was collecting for my household. I was collecting for my household. You're collecting for your household. Some of you are so discontented. You're, you're so angry with God and you're grumbling and complaining. And he's saying, I got some manna for you to collect for your household. Put it in a jar. Keep it for them. Because they're seeing what you're doing. One last thing. They said, they looked at the manna and they called it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? I was going to skip over all of that. I wasn't even going to talk about it tonight. How many of you have been in a wilderness? Dry, parched place that's hard. I, Dave will tell you, I've spent most of my life there, haven't I? And, and every time we get to a palm tree and we get some rest, another one comes, another wilderness comes, and I'll say to Dave, Lord, what is this? What are you doing? What is this, Lord? Today I wrote in my notes, what is this? I wanted to cross it out because I thought it's not important to talk about. 
But I wonder how many of you in your wilderness say to God, he tells you to eat, and you say, what is this? This isn't what I wanted. I ask you for pots of meat. I ask you, I ask you to do it this way, Lord. What is this? A trial? Hard, hard life? What, what are you doing? What is this? I don't like it. It's not what I wanted. It's not the way I thought it would be. It's not the way I thought it should be. What, what is this, Lord? It is my best for you. You betcha it is. It's bread from heaven, Rhea. It's a heavenly catered meal. Just what you need. Do you know that what they got in that manna sustained them throughout the wilderness? It didn't even make sense that they should be able to live that long in that kind of, of environment. But God knew exactly what they needed to get them through that time. And when I'm in a wilderness and I say to God, what is this, Lord? He'll say, it's exactly what you need for where I'm taking you, Rhea. Do you believe that? And you see, I've changed my view. Dave will even tell you this. I've changed my view about the wilderness. I used to grumble. I still grumble and complain, but not nearly as much as I used to. Because you see, I'm not infatuated anymore. It's not about, God, can you do it my way, and I'll love you if you do. It's, Lord, I just want intimacy with you. I want connection with you. And if I need this situation to foster that, I will rejoice always. I will pray continuously. I will give thanks in all things, Lord, because all I want is your will for me in Christ Jesus. Here's what I've learned, but I'm still learning. He is so faithful. I was holding that check in my hand tonight, and I said to Dave, when I'm in the midst of trouble, grumbling and complaining, I just want God to fix it. But 27 years later, I look back, and I'm like, if you had fixed it, I would have missed all of this. I would have missed a little boy calling me on the phone tonight <laughs> telling me what God had done. I would have missed all that if God had just fixed it and not made us walk through it. I don't know what it is you're going through, but I want to introduce you to a faithful God who will never let you down. The enemy wants you to believe he will, and he'll whisper, but you need to set your face like Flint, believing that he is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he'll do. His tender care for you is always first and foremost in his mind. Let me pray for you before you leave. Father God, I thank you and I praise you that you are the bread from heaven. And Lord, as we partake of you and we, we uh, eat of you, Lord God, we are sustained. We have life, Lord God, like we've never had it before. That you are everything we need. You are a heavenly catered meal for our life. So Father, I thank you for the invitation that we can come and eat of you and that we will never hunger or thirst again that you are everything we need for this wilderness journey. Father, I pray for those that are here tonight who don't really believe that. I pray that you would show yourself strong, that you would reveal yourself to them as the giver of life, 
as the faithful father, as the great I am, everything they have need of, you are. Would you bless my sisters and my brothers, Lord? Draw us deeper into you and into the things of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.